0: Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members and other socially responsible organizations for more information on the power of community ownership visit ncb.coop that's ncb.coop now stay tuned for your host vernon oaks good morning everybody welcome to everything co-op this is vernon oaks and this morning my guest is peter dean good morning peter
1: Good morning, Vernon.
0: And how are you today?
1: I am very well. Exciting to exciting to be on everything co-op.
0: Great. Great And great to have you. Uh, thank you for taking out of your busy schedule to come and share with us uh, what you've been doing in the co-op world. Well, let's start off by getting people to understand a little bit about who you are.
1: Where, what part of the world are you in now? I'm in uh, Maryland, uh, suburban Washington, D.C.,
0: Oh, you're a homeboy then. Okay, I'm in D.C. and you in Southern Maryland. Okay, you're in a DMV. Where did you grow up and go to school and all of that?
1: Well, I grew up in the D.C. area. I was actually born in Northern Virginia, grew up in Northwest D.C., and went to junior high and high school in Bethesda. Okay. And college? Uh, college, Earlham College in in Indiana quaker school which is uh where i first had my first time seriously running a co-op we i helped run the food co-op there
0: wait a minute you're saying that you you were able to learn about co-ops in college and help run a co-op in college
1: i did actually i learned about co-ops on an internship uh in college uh here in washington dc with old Greenbelt consumer services uh that had uh about 20 grocery stores and half a dozen furniture stores around B.C. as cooperatives. And part of that internship, I got to work with Stan Dreyer at NCBA CLUSA and uh, helping him. <laughs> Truly, it was some filing on, on the co-op bank bill, but uh, interning on the co-op bank bill for a little bit.
0: And so the co-op bank bill is National Cooperative Bank. That was Correct. back yes. then. They were trying to get that bank up and get it passed through Congress.
1: That's right. And uh, so I, I got to, to meet Stan Dreyer, who became one of my uh, my mentors.
0: So you're unusual. Uh, most people on this show don't learn about co-ops until later on in life like me. I didn't learn about co-ops until I was 55. I would have loved to have learned about it in college or high school or on the farm, at some had. Okay, so you, you got to learn about co-ops in college, and you said you were able to work in a food co-op. What did you do early on in that food co-op?
1: Well, in college, it was a full volunteer co-op, so I was one of the, the managers, and so we did everything, yeah. everything from bookkeeping to uh, – Putting the food out, or ordering it, staffing the store. We had a lot of volunteers help staff the store, but we did most everything else.
0: So, when you say you do, you want to learn about running a business? Get into a food co-op <laughs> in <laughs> college, and you can you can do everything. Okay. <laughs>
1: yep.
0: How did that? Did it interfere with your studying? That seemed like it's a Not big at all. load.
1: No, actually, one of the things, I, I took a computer programming class, which back then was punch cards, just to show my age, and uh, what I did was designed a little bookkeeping program for the co-op, so I was able to integrate it into my studies, and uh, I was an economics and peace and conflict studies major, so it, it fit in pretty well.
0: Peace and conflict, Okay economics and peace and conflict and learning about a food co-op and how to manage it. That's exciting because most people don't have that. So from going to a food co-op in college and Stan Dreyer, the National Co-op Bank has a um, an award called the Stan Dreyer Spirit of Co-op Award in honor of his name. Uh, he, yeah. he, he did a lot. So, it, you know, yeah. I, I kind of envy you to be able to work under him and have him as a mentor in this whole co-op world. Phenomenal. Okay. Where did you go from food co-op in college?
1: Well, what my first job out of college was running a a food co-op in Milwaukee. And uh, while I was in Milwaukee, I also helped set up a scattered site housing co-op, which was my first introduction to uh, the housing co-ops and the, crowning thing i did in milwaukee was we tried to set up a cable television cooperative for the city wisconsin is co-op country so actually the law required a consumer cooperative cable television franchise unless overruled by a super majority of the council and unfortunately time warner came in and legally bought the council and uh we didn't get it but uh it was really exciting to to build that coalition even though we didn't quite get there
0: okay so you learned a lot though i did At a ver- very early age about how it works scattered yeah. site housing co-op yeah, what, we, how we was that fighting. and how, what, what role did you play in doing that
1: well mostly i was an active member the co-op bought old houses most sort of victorian era houses in the inner city in milwaukee sort of the the biggest house in the co-op, uh, which was probably the first house, I, I believe, was an old leather millionaire's mansion, but the house I lived in was, was more modest, and all the houses were in lousy shape, but back then, interest rates were through the roof, and uh, there was a federal 3% loan program to repair houses for affordable housing, so we were able to fix up the houses very inexpensively with that. And we probably had, I don't know, probably 25 or 30 houses. And then ended up, after I I had left, they got some small apartment buildings as well. But it was all within walking distance in the same neighborhood.
0: Okay. So your food co-op, which is a consumer co-op, your housing co-op is consumer co-op, and cable TV is consumer co-op. Okay. You're seeing a theme. Um, Where did you go from Milwaukee and all of his excitement?
1: Well, when we didn't get the cable franchise, I decided to apply to business school and ended up at Duke university as their, their, uh, token liberal. I I joked that one of my best friends, uh, Mark was, uh, who'd worked on Reagan's campaign was the next least conservative guy uh, on campus, but it was, uh, it was a really interesting time. I think you have an MBA as well, and it's co-ops are not necessarily the traditional thing to do with an MBA. But that was uh, that was what I was uh, looking to do with it.
0: Come, hold on, Peter. You said not necessarily my MBA. There was no conversation about co-ops. I knew nothing <laughs> about co-ops in the business school. It was all capitalism all return on investment. Every decision was what gives you the greatest return for the shareholder. Okay, that. That was all decisions made on that criteria. Nowhere were there co-ops.
1: Well, I'd go even further and say that really what I was learning at uh, Duke was about monopoly capitalism. It was how how do you make a bigger profit than anyone else in the industry can make, and that's certainly not co-ops. It's quite the opposite. But it was still a very good training for my co-op work.
0: It would have been interesting to have, co-op knowledge going into an mba program where there's no co-ops did you get into debates in the classrooms about co-ops did you bring that up or did you kind of keep quiet and go ahead and learn what they were teaching you and then figure out how to apply it to co-op
1: um certainly with uh with with my friends i would bring it up but uh in class i i mostly stuck to uh
0: To what they were teaching. Smart. Okay. Very smart. Very smart. And what's amazing to me, which I found out later, I got my MBA from Stanford. And Leland Stanford, who gave the money, the farm, and the money to start a university, also wanted them to teach about worker co-ops. Okay, he was uh, really ahead of his time. But Stanford never, he passed, and Stanford never took up. And I've gone back and tried to talk to them about that even as early as, late as five years ago. But I can't get any conversations going on about co-ops inside the capitalistic MBA program. Not dogging it, just what it is, monopolistic capital. Okay, sir, so you you at Duke after doing a scatter site housing co-op and working on a cable TV co-op and doing a food co-op, where did you go after Duke?
1: I went to the Cooperative Housing Foundation, which uh, had developed about 60,000 units of HUD housing co-ops around the country in the 50s and 60s and 70s until Reagan had shut down the the HUD co-op programs and they were trying to figure out how to continue doing something in the US and I helped build a a project out in Aurora Colorado outside Denver which was really their last uh their last co-op project it was called Twin Pines Village which I think ended up later converting to a uh a condo association but uh that, it was it was still a very interesting time Wally Campbell, who you may know the name, he was one of the founders of CARE, which people don't know stands for Cooperative American Relief Everywhere. CARE was is set up as a cooperative. And he was, he was one of our board members and a wonderful man, really generous with his time. And uh, so we, we did some interesting work. They were shifting mostly to working on housing cooperatives internationally. So they were doing a big project in Central America. So I, I worked on financial modeling of a banking system for cooperatives throughout Central America, and that was fascinating.
0: What, was this Cooperative Housing Foundation, was Roger Wilcox associated with that? At
1: all? Yeah, Roger was, and uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. There were folks from all, of, all over the co-op, world uh, on the board credit unions nationwide insurance um, the rural electric cooperatives
0: and and peter we talked about your history it's great we're going to take our first break and we're going to come back and take it from cooperative housing foundation to today what you're doing we'll be right back please don't touch that dial
1: This is W.O.L. News Talk 1450 a.m. and 95.9 FM 959.
0: Welcome back, everybody. This is Everything Co-op. My name is Vernon Oaks, and Mr. Peter Dean is our guest today. Uh, He's out of Southern Maryland, grew up here in the D.C. area. Um, and we're going over his history of learning about co-ops in college, then going get an MBA where there was little to no discussion about co-ops in the classroom. He talked to, to, about it to his friends. Um, and after business school, he went to Cooperative Housing Foundation, and that's what we were talking about. Um, I had mentioned Roger Wilcock because you mentioned Stanley Dreyer as your mentor. Well, Roger was, Mine, he and Herb Fisher, I joined the National Association of Housing Co-ops, and they were very much involved, and they would almost sit me at their knee to teach me about co-ops, but I was in my 50s already uh, when they were teaching me, not in my 20s or teens, as you were when you got started in college. Where did you go from the Cooperative Housing Foundation, or how long were you with them, and then where did you go after
1: that? I was with them for about five years, and... Then they were sh- shutting down their domestic work and I went with Jim Upchurch, one of the vice presidents. Actually, he became the president and did rural affordable housing development. It wasn't cooperatives. It was nonprofit. Uh, it was a, an interfaith group in Western Maryland and worked with them for several years uh, before I then went and re- was the Maryland regional manager for cooperative services. CSI, the elderly co-op that uh, has about 60 buildings nationally and I don't know six or seven thousand members, uh, all elderly. All um, it's interesting. It's one co-op nationally. Uh, it's a membership co-op, so it's zero equity, and the board of directors is all members from collected among by elected by the members around those 60 buildings. So it's a really fascinating model, really exciting to work
0: at. Well, I got to know them at the National Association of Housing Co-ops. CSI was a member, and uh, it it was also very interesting that um, the people at the national that represented CSI were the people that lived in those housing co-ops, and so they're just everyday people, Making major decisions on how the operating of those, those different housing co ops, those different properties. Um, quite interesting model. I liked yep. it, studying it, went to visit some of them. Okay,
1: so your CSI, which is huge, how long were you with them? I was with them for several years, and then I got tempted away by an old, one of my best friends who I'd helped him set up a, a for-profit affordable housing developer in the D.C. area and sort of Silver Spring area, and we ended up buying three buildings, about 250 units. And he asked me to uh, to run it, and uh, made me sort of an, an offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, and uh, I, I was starting to have small kids, and he said I could he'd pay me a lot more to work work less hard. Um, okay. so I did that for about twenty years, and uh, we we sold that business early in the pandemic, uh, having already decided to before the pandemic came along, and thought about what you know, what did I want to do next and thought my the thing i'd really always wanted to do was set up a a national group to supporting the development of housing co-ops because i 'd written a business plan. Actually, my internship in the middle of business school was with MCBA Clusa. I was my second time interning with them. And I helped write a business plan for a national group that would help finance co-ops. And it never got off the ground. But I'd always felt like it was something really, really needed and looked around and found Everyone pointed me to, I should talk to Andy Riker at UHAB if I was interested in housing co-ops. Small world, one of my wife's best friends from college is Marina Metalios, who's been the training director at uh, UHAB for virtually her entire, she's been at UHAB virtually her entire career since college. And so called her up and said, you're the, that's the same place, isn't it? And it was. And, uh, Andy and I hit it off, and we've been building a, a national uh, capability sh- building on UHAB's 50-year history.
0: Okay, so I just want to make sure I get this straight. In college, 40 years ago, you wrote a business plan, and then you worked your life and you raised your children and all of this, and then you say, I want to implement this business plan. And you looked around and were to do that, and Andy Riker, who's been on the show at you out of New York, they've been in business fifty years or so, creating affordable housing in New York City, which is major so uh and by the way how many how many properties or units have they created what do you
1: have has developed over thirteen hundred affordable housing co-ops And about 30, a a bit over 30,000 units, uh, apartments of housing. So the buildings tend to be, you know, 20 or 30 units, five-story walk-ups, which are typical in in New York. Uh, So a lot of little co-ops.
0: But 30,000 families, even if it's a family of two, that's 60,000 people. If it's a family of four, then that's 120,000 people. So it's significant. Significant, major significance in in terms of contribution and impact. Okay, so you're talking to Andy about implementing this college business plan of a national group supporting the development of housing co-ops. And so did did you all get this started?
1: Well, we we were talking about it seriously and entered what's a competition – for the Morgan Stanley puts on, where they called the the Morgan Stanley Challenge, where they give a team of five vice presidents to about ten nonprofits every year, and they they gave us about ten weeks of consulting to figure out our bus what our business model should be, and recommended that. We set up incubators around the country and do training for trainers and then follow on consulting. Cause one of the things we'd seen with the cooperative housing foundation's work, uh, decades ago is a lot of it would, they sort of come into town, set up a co-op and, and leave and go to the next town and didn't really leave support in place and with the co-op model you know it it really works better as a ground up rather than a top down as you well know and so our our plan is to put on these incubators which really train local people to develop housing cooperatives and also still be there to keep supporting the co-ops because that's we've seen in new york that that's really a key piece that ongoing support over the decades really you know, keeps the co-ops healthy and really allows them to, to flourish.
0: Well, we also see that in D.C. with TOPA laws that Marin Berry put in place, that these, those co-ops that were created, uh, converted from apartments to co-ops, too often they didn't have that consistent ongoing training. And 30, 40, 50, 60 years later, they would be in bad shape, uh, maybe physically, um, the governance, all kinds of different kinds of things because they didn't keep up with that training. Okay, you have an exciting, exciting, exciting um, background to, to lead to this. What are some of the lessons that you have learned that you're able to put
1: into these incubators?
0: Can you give me one before we take our next break?
1: Sure. I think yeah you know, one of them is yeah you know, that one of their huge benefits is what we call pocket equity. Yeah you know, these are limited equity so they don't get a lot of uh money when they sell it but people are able to really yeah you know have money for their during their lives as they stay in the co-op and that that's really one of the huge benefits of of being a member of a of a housing co-op one of these limited equity housing co-ops.
0: Um, so you call it pocket equity?
1: Yeah, that it's it's not the equity you get when you die, uh, when you sell the house. Uh, it's it's you know, money you have all along the way to raise your kids and uh, get an education. I, love um, it. That, I think that's a, a, toine, a, a term uh, Andy uh, Riker coined.
0: I like it. I like it a lot. All right. We're going to take our second break. And I would like to come back and talk about some of the other lessons that you have has learned in their 50 years of creating affordable housing in New York. And then how you're applying those lessons to these incubators and were you having incubators. So we have a lot to talk about. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. News Talk, 1450 WOLAM, where information is power. Welcome back, everybody. Um, this is Vernon Oaks and the program is Everything Co-op. Um, this program has been sponsored. Well, Peter, we this October we'll be on the air for 10, 10 years. And through the 10 years, NCB has been our main sponsor. Um NCB's mission is to support co-ops and their members by providing innovative financial services. And so, as you're creating housing co-ops, Peter, have you had the opportunity of working with uh, NCB to do any financing, particularly creative financing?
1: Well, we I, we have not yet uh, done any any, any deals with them but uh we are working with them closely actually i'm going to be they've offered me office space uh so i'll be uh working out of their office one day a week coming up uh so they're they're very strong partners of ours um so yeah so that will be a lot of fun
0: and i i expect that because that's who they've been Uh, they've they've been our main partner in supporting us uh, both financially and giving us ideas of people that are doing things in the co-op world Uh, so you you hooked up with andy and morgan stanley did this uh free consulting for you to hook up incubators so I said I wanted to come back and talk about other lessons that you have have learned in their 50 years of providing affordable housing in New York. Uh, what are some of those lessons, and how do you put those into your incubators so that, that other people can get these same lessons? Sure.
1: Well, I, part of it, the, you know, one of the things we've seen with these 30,000 families, uh, or you know, far more than that because there's been some turnover, but the, yeah, you know, it's really people are able to 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 build a co-op that builds a community and really helps lift themselves out of poverty, and you know, it really gives them a community and just an imme- immense support system beyond the simple. Uh, savings, yeah, part of it is that they, be, by being owners of the co-op, they're, you know, they're permanent members. You know, even in nonprofit housing, you, you may not get to stay forever. Uh, but as an owner, you know, you follow the rules, pay your rent or pay, pay your carrying charges, you know, you're, you're going to stay there forever. And it really builds communities that people help each other, you know, you look after each other's kids, when they're going to night school, it's just, you know, all the things that, you know, that it takes to, to, you know, to solve your own problems. And, you know, people also end up being leaders in their wider community. You yeah. know, in New York City, there's a lot of small school boards and, You know, there's a statistically improbable number of co-op leaders who are on their local school boards, for instance. And, um, you know, that's just, yeah, and people's health improves. Uh, you know, their, their kids get, they get a better education. Their kids get a better education. And, you know, part, yeah, part of that is, you know, having the agency, the, the really solving your own problems is really empowerment. Yeah, it's, it's one thing to have somebody else help you, but to really help yourself, uh, which is what co-ops are about, um, really makes all the difference. And that's one of the things we're trying to, to, to do nationally is first of all, with our incubators, empower people locally to develop the housing co-ops with, with some help from us. But we, we don't want them to be dependent on us. Any more than the co-op members should be dependent. Um, that you know, co-ops are about empowerment and really solving our own problems, and and that's what that's what we're trying to teach and what we've we've learned, you know, in those fifty years.
0: Oh, that's that's fantastic, and. Uh... How I found out about co ops was I was managing housing co ops in Washington, D.C. And most of those housing co ops in the governance, of the president, vice president, secretary, treasurer, the board of directors were mainly African American women in these mm-hmm. affordable housing. And I found that uh, most often they didn't, at best, they had a high school degree. And they knew how to run a business. They didn't go to get a at Duke or Stanford and get an MBA. <laughs> but they got the training that they need. I call it just in time training. They got the training they needed to make very good informed decisions and they held each other accountable. And they held me accountable as their manager. Uh they took no mess. Um and I and that's what caused me to fall in love with co ops Early on, watching these ladies in meetings make good decisions and go by the bylaws, and, and, and I got, uh, Peter, that this dignity and this improvement and this physical health improvements and mental health improvements was a lot because they got voice. Nowhere else in our society gives – African-Americans, particularly female African-Americans, a voice that were are heard. In this case, in their community, they're heard. And they would then go get on the board of directors of the, the school board or run for city council or run for whatever else there might be or start a food co-op or whatever else they expanded. And one yeah. lady, and she turned out to be a German uh who had married a man during world war two an african-american and she they raised their three children in a co-op and they all had either law degrees or medical doctor degrees and she said that was her wealth was through her children and you call it pocket wealth yes there's a lot of wealth that these co-ops helped to bring um so now you're you're doing this taking these lessons that you have learned that I learned and different people learn, like, like the Roger Wilcox of the world. And you applying these to these incubators. So where, where are you doing incubators now?
1: Well, we, we did one in Rochester uh, recently. We've got some scheduled in Chicago and uh, Minneapolis. We'll be doing this fall and we're, we're we're just getting started, so we're we're talking to folks in, in LA and Seattle, uh, and I expect in the next year we'll do some incubators there, and then we're also planning to do what we're calling national incubators, which will be open to groups around the country uh, that don't have quite the concentration that uh, something like Chicago does, uh, which they're doing really. The city's making a big effort on to support co ops. Not every city is. Um, so we want to be able to train uh, housing professionals around the country and community groups in uh, in how to develop uh, housing cooperatives. And some of the people already know something about affordable housing development or something about co-ops. They, you know, there's one work group in Nashville. It's a worker co-op center. They know co-ops, but they don't know uh, housing. So we try to to train people sort of soup to nuts, uh, you know, everything you need to do to develop a housing cooperative and um, and how to structure it so that it can remain permanently affordable. And that's that's one of the things that we've seen around the country is pro- close about half of, the, half of the limited equity co-ops that have been developed in the last uh, 70 years, are no longer affordable because of the way they were structured, um, which is a real shame. And uh, so that we're trying to teach people you know, to do them in a way that is truly sustainable.
0: So we found the same, same thing here. Um, I was on a task force that uh, um, looked at the affordable housing co-ops and like right now there are ninety nine and i don't know if i think the number sounds like there were two hundreds created some much larger number created and i had managed a couple of them that the, the then board decided to sell them uh... either to take make them into a condo and sell them or just sell them outright for somebody else to come in and then they captured that that money because of gentrification uh, yeah. And that 's and i i didn't think they had it until you start reading their deeds and their loan documents uh, more often than not, it was affordable as long as they had a loan that loan was forty years after forty years they could do whatever they wanted. Some decided to make it continue to make it affordable, and some decided to take the money and run so right,
1: right. now when we did the national survey of the about uh 150,000 HUD insured, uh, co-op units, only 35,000, uh, remain limited equity because you're exactly right. They were tied. the, The restrictions were tied to the mortgage and 40 years might seem like a long time when you're starting out, but you and I have both been around long enough to know 40 years comes and goes and you still need affordable housing. Um, and, uh, one of the things that we're now encouraging is having community land trusts own the land under cooperatives. And that, that provides a way for the community to, to keep the affordability and, and take that choice away from the future resident. Um, and, and able to keep it affordable while still having community input into how how it's uh managed in the long run so typically what's a the community land trust on the land.
0: but peter what's a community land trust
1: community land trust is a an organization that has three typically three kinds of board members residents who live in buildings that that are on their land uh other uh, community members, typically low income people who just live in the neighborhood. And the third group is professionals who, who, who are supportive, you know, perhaps lawyers or accountants who can give the board, uh, expertise that is, is helpful to running the corporation in the long run.
0: But then uh, they, I, the
1: I, I, I'm also on the board of Grounded Solutions, which is the National Community Land Trust Association.
0: But the Community Land Trust owns the owns the land.
1: They own the land, and the co-op owns the building. And one thing that people Often don't realize is when there's massive appreciation through gentrification. Often, it really it's the land that's appreciating, and the building itself is actually depreciating. It's it's wearing out, and so the real value long term is the land. And you know, if we can preserve that for community's benefit, um, you don't end up with the co-ops getting sold off and what I I call a last man club. It's whoever happens to be there benefits, not the people who've built that co-op over the decade.
0: So, Peter, we um, are going to go into our last break. I'm really excited about your your history of all that you have done in in the co-op world. And I'm very much interested in what you're going to do so i i'd like to come back and talk a little bit more about your incubators like particularly what's what's going on in chicago or, or what did you all do in rochester new york but it looks like you're all over the all over the nation so what you're doing and i'm most interested peter and i assume uh you and andy Riker have talked about this what does the future look like um and how we can keep these uh, affordable housing co-ops going. We'll be right back. Don't touch that down. News Talk 1450, WOLAM, where information is power. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is Everything Co-op, and we have Mr. Peter Dean on with us today. And we were talking about incubators. Um, and they are all over uh, the U.S., in Chicago and Rochester, um, Nashville, Seattle, L.A. in the future. So what do you do in the incubators? What what kinds of training do you want to impart on people?
1: Well, we we start out, of course, with introducing what is a limited equity co-op and how does it differ from uh, either a nonprofit owner or traditional home ownership with single family or condo. And, and then we go through, you know, how, what, what's involved with developing it in both financing and, you know, land acquisition or building acquisition is, of course, you know, we different if it's an occupied building that, is converting to a co-op than if you're doing new construction, but we cover both, both kinds of, of co-op development. And yeah, a big piece of course is how do you make it affordable, which is harder and harder with le- little federal money and uh, interest rates rising. But we are seeing uh, cities around the country and states putting serious money into affordable housing, which is, is Part of why of the choice of where people are calling us to, to help um, is places that do have opportunities for for the money. But we also go over you know, the training necessary for the members and and structuring the co-op so that it can continue to afford training uh, over the long run. That's one of the mistakes that was made in the past was not building any money into the operating budget in the long run to pay. Uh, for that support. And, uh, and and
0: you had put that into their budgets, didn't they? You, they did. You had with the units to in New York. They
1: it into the, uh, into the underwriting of the building. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not a huge amount of money, but as you know, even $10,000 a year is a lot of money when you're talking affordable housing.
0: Um, yes, and too often that's the first thing that goes out of the budget when there's crises or issues. If is if it's in the budget of the building, it just goes away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, some of it's you know interesting things like management versus governance. You know we you know, the as you know as a building manager, that's very different than the governance of the co-op, and you want to make sure both that they get they both get done, but that they also both are, are really nurtured. And management is sort of the day-to-day work on the co-op and the governance is setting the rules and policies for the the managers to implement. And, uh, so it's really trying to help people, you know, different, different groups really be able to develop affordable housing co-ops that are sustainable. And it, so it's very exciting, rewarding work. Getting to work with a lot of really amazing people around the country. Um, you mentioned Chicago, and uh, that's the they, they have a an initiative to build a a cooperative infrastructure that will support housing co-ops, but also worker co-ops, uh, community land trusts, and a, a notion I'm not terribly familiar with of it's. Commercial cooperatives. It seems like shopping centers or the like that are owned by the community um, that can be used as a community resource. Um, and so that's one of the, that's the fourth piece they're trying to support. I believe there's a group in Chicago that's been working on that um, that I have not gotten very familiar with yet. But uh, Chicago, like D.C., has a long co-op history. And quite a few housing co-ops. Though a lot of them, like the ones you were mentioning in DC, have been lost to affordability. There's a large black co-op, uh, I believe several hundred units that the board sold it to a developer, uh, last year. Um, it's just a real shame. Um, and that's, that's not the the preservation of those existing co-ops that other groups are working on. In Chicago, We're not working as much on that, although we do work with uh, NAHC on the development preservation committee to support preservation of co-ops around the country. So that's really separate from our incubators. Um,
0: and, and so in Chicago, one of the reasons that they seem like they would be a good partner is the city has put up money to create this co-op system, this ecosystem of co-ops. And I can't remember how
1: much. It was a huge amount of money that they put out well, They put about $2 million into sort of creating the infrastructure, another $2 million into pre-development grants for different co-ops, and are talking about something in the naturehood of $20 million overall uh, to support the actual development of the co-ops. Um, so, you know, that's. Yeah, that's a really great start um, Los Angeles is, is a real model in terms of financing. They passed the, the man, what they're calling the mansion tax which will raise probably half a billion dollars a year for the city of uh, Los Angeles for affordable housing and a hundred million of that is earmarked for co-ops and, and community land trusts. Um, so that's why you're saying that groups. mansion tax
0: will will create five hundred million dollars a year and one hundred yeah. million will go into affordable house, uh, affordable uh, co-ops.
1: Correct. It's really, you know, um, that that that's, you know, now you're talking real money.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, now you can do something. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's um, why it, we're working with the groups there.
0: What about up in Seattle? You got you, you you're hitting the middle middle of the country, and you've got LA, the southern part. Now you talked about Seattle, Nashville. You talked about Rochester, New York, earlier.
1: Yep. Now we're 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 working yeah you know, with groups as you say all over the country, uh, frequently where there's uh you know, groups see an opportunity to get financing. Um which is, you know, which, as I've mentioned earlier, is, is is the hardest part with uh, any kind of affordable housing these days. And co-ops, um, if anything, are harder to finance. The, the biggest uh, way of financing uh, affordable housing in the U.S. is what are called low-income housing tax credits, which are very difficult for co-ops to use because they involve the building being owned by investors for the first 15 years. So, yeah, it's been a difficult you know, model to try to use them, and when that's the biggest source of uh, federal money, um, but state and city monies uh, have been important in New York and other cities and states are modeling after that and creating pools of money that are available, and that's which uh, is really hardening.
0: So. I didn't know it was under Reagan's administration that stopped the funding, the federal funding, for low-income co-ops, housing co-ops. But they replaced that funding with low-income housing tax credit. And these tax credits, to me, are just giving rich people the ability to make more money. And I find that always, I find that very, very interesting that policies are created – to help rich people get more money where when you are able to create housing costs, for all of the reasons that you talked about and, Andy, and you have found out about, it really helps people that are in poverty or poor get dignity and get pocket wealth and get children to go to colleges and all of those different kinds of things. And so how do we get the federal government how do we get people in Congress and in the Senate that will put money in so that everyday people get the money, not rich people making more and more money? To me, that's what the focus ought to be. At least that's my focus. How do we do
1: that? Well, one one idea that we've been uh, looking at is in the uh, IRA, the, the climate bill, the farm co-ops, the uh, electric co-ops, were able to get a provision for direct pay energy tax credit. So they always had to do the same thing, get an investor to own the the, uh, the solar farm or wind farm in order to get the tax credits. Uh, and now they've got a provision that allows them to just go to, go to the Treasury and file a tax return and, and get a direct pay. Uh, refund of those credits if we could do that for housing it would make make it much more straightforward to to develop a housing co-op that and be awesome. uh, that that would really be the the most straightforward way to to modify the existing program to to work for co-ops
0: peter we only have one minute you have a uh, 30 seconds that's something you'd like to leave people with
1: well i guess that it is The people can solve their own problems if we give them the right kind of help. And that's training and government support. And the rich people get lots of support of housing. If we took a little bit of the government support of dollars for housing to go to wealthy people, to, to poor people, we'd have a lot better situation.
0: Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much for taking our time and sharing Everybody out there, we will see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively. News Talk 1450 WOLAM, where information is powered.